I absolutely love being on the mountaintop. I love being on top of the mountain. For years and years, I, I heard about this really, really cool place on top of Mount Lacant near Gatlinburg. Matter of fact, if you've ever been to Gatlinburg, you've seen Mount Lacant because Mount Lacant is that massive, big, tall mountain that kind of overshadows Gatlinburg. And uh, near the very top of Mount Lacant, there's a lodge up there. Strangely enough, the name of the lodge is Lacant Lodge, but three of you got that. Thank you. Good, good. Uh, Lacant Lodge. There is electricity there, but it's provided by a generator. There are no roads to the Lacant Lodge. Uh, you can get there by helicopter or by llama or by five trails, five very difficult trails. Hiking to the top of the mountain is not easy, but I will say this, hiking to the top of the mountain is relatively easy compared to getting reservations for the Lacant Lodge. Uh, I tried for years and years, I called hundreds of times, and I'm not speaking as a preacher now, when I say hundreds of times, I mean hundreds of times, and I didn't have one of those fancy auto dialers you know, that would just call for you. I mean, I was basically hitting redial. The number's busy. Redial. The number's busy. I, I tried for years. It was on my bucket list. I wanted to climb to the top of Mount Lacant and then spend the night in the Lacant Lodge. Finally, thanks to one of my favorite uh, brothers-in-law, uh, we were able to get reservations. We then hiked to the top of the mountain. We, as in... Weston and I hiked to the top of that mountain. Uh, subsequently, I've been able to hike with Justin as well. And um, I think it took us that first time, correct me if I'm wrong, Weston, but I, I think it took us five hours to hike all the way up. We spent the night in the lodge, and then we hiked back down the next day, which is good because I don't, I don't know that I could have made it all in one day. I, if I had to, I could have, I guess. But whew, was it worth it? Was the mountaintop experience worth the wait? Was it worth all the pain? Because I was sore for a week after that. No exaggeration. I would say that it was worth it. Yes. Mountaintop experience. Since then, I've returned to the top of the mountain, and I have spent five nights in the lodge. And today's message is about another mountaintop experience. And so... Are you ready? Are you ready to hike to the top of the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus, James, Peter, and John? Well, get your backpack on. Here we go. Make sure you bring some water, plenty of water, snacks. It's going to be good. Let's pray. Father, please keep us safe on our hike to the top of the mountain where Peter, James, and John were able to have an interesting conversation with Moses and Elijah and got to see Jesus Christ transfigured before their very eyes. Keep us safe on our hike. Make this meaningful to us, Lord. Teach us what you would have us to learn. Burn in our hearts what you would have us to change. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Now, if you were in Sunday school, you know that... Uh, 
we talked about the transfiguration and we were in Matthew chapter 17. But I'm actually going to take you to Mark chapter 9, uh, one of the synoptic gospels, one of the gospels that has a somewhat parallel account. I love how the gospels will take one event and then show you that event through three different eyewitnesses, three different sets of eyes, and we can see it more fully. So I'll be in Mark chapter 9, and we'll read verse 1 for starters. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. This is the word of the Lord. All right, what's going on here? Mark chapter 9 verse 1 is a perfect transition verse. The book of Mark is brilliantly organized. It's 16 chapters. It's the shortest gospel. It is my favorite gospel. I say that with a little bit of fear and trembling because I love John as well. And it's, the book is brilliantly organized. And from a chapter perspective, Mark chapter 9 Verse 1 is the halfway point. It marks the exact halfway point. The first eight chapters show the humanity of man. The last eight chapters show the divinity of Jesus. I'm sorry, the humanity of Jesus. The last eight chapters demonstrate the true divinity of Jesus. The first eight chapters of Mark show us Jesus the man... And the last eight chapters of Mark show us Jesus' mission. Pastor writer Tim Keller wrote a fabulous book on Mark, and I highly recommend this book. Uh, I have read it uh, twice, and I would read it again. It's that good. And the name of his book about the book of Mark, the name of his book is King's Cross, and he helps us, Dr. Keller helps us to see that the first eight chapters demonstrate that Jesus really is the king. And the last eight chapters show us that the king has a cross. Hence the name of the book, King's Cross. So Mark chapter 9 verse 1 is a perfect transition from what has happened in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 ends with Peter's great confession. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And he got several different answers. And then, as Jesus will do, he puts the question directly to them, yes, but who do you say that I am? And Peter got it right. And Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's a turning point also. From that point on, the scriptures say, from that point on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples how he must go up to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the authorities there, and be crucified and died. And Peter says, I, I'm, not, I'm not getting that. I'm not agreeing with that. Peter can't believe what he's hearing, so he has a little sidebar conversation with Jesus, and he actually rebukes him. But that rebuke boomerangs. Peter sends it out, and it comes right back, and it hits him. It's a 180 degree switch. We go from hearing Peter tell Jesus, this will not happen to you, Jesus, far be it from you, to hearing Jesus call Peter Satan and say, get behind me, for you are not valuing the things of God, but you are valuing the things of man. 
Was Jesus angry with Peter? Yes. Matthew tells us that six days later, the events that we're going to study here, this mountaintop experience took place. I will say this, following Jesus is never boring. Just ask Peter. I mentioned earlier today in our announcement that one of our community groups is going to be following through with The Chosen. It's a TV series that focuses on Jesus and his interactions with his disciples, The Chosen. And one of the things that Jesus says in one of the uh, episodes, which I just appreciate so much, um, something strange happens and the disciples look at each other and they've got that quizzical look on their, on their face and, and Jesus says, get used to different. Well, when you follow Jesus, you better get used to different, uh, especially if you're in a church plant at Blackman Baptist Church. Different? Yes. Boring? No. But if you're following Jesus, then you're following Jesus, and that's enough. When we're following Jesus, we can rest assured that we're on the right path. As David said, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He leads me in the right paths for his namesake. He renews my life. And you know, it's interesting because Psalm 23 starts and David is testifying about the Lord. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And it's almost like he's, he's telling this maybe to his children or maybe to his brothers and his sister, or, or maybe he's, he's just talking to his friends and he's talking about how good the Lord is and how the Lord has protected him. But halfway through the psalm, it changes. And it's like, Jesus, it's like David stops talking about the Lord and starts talking to the Lord. He says, even when I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil for you are with me. He just switches and he goes and he's praying. He goes from testifying to praying. By the way, I think it's a really good model for how we should share Christ. We tell people what the Lord has done for us. And then we're overcome with the power of the fact that Jesus is actually with us. And we can talk to him just like David talked to him. When we're following Jesus, we can walk assured knowing that our good shepherd will take us through the darkest valley. So Mark chapter 8 ends and Mark chapter 9 begins and it begin, begins with this perfect transition verse. You do know that the chapters and verse uh, designations that we have in our Bible are not inspired. So when we read Mark 9, 1, we have to ask ourselves, is this really a good transition verse? Does it belong in chapter 9 or does it really belong at the end of chapter 8? And after reading this and studying this, I am absolutely convinced that the answer is yes. Thank you once again for getting that. Four of you got it that time. That's good. We're moving up. We went from three, now we're at four. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. So at the end of chapter 8, Jesus predicts his coming suffering and his death. But at the beginning of chapter 9, he gives his disciples a little foretaste of glory divine. 
Notice what Jesus promises here. He says there are some here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. Notice that Jesus does not promise that some of his followers will not die. He promises that they will not taste death. Some will not taste death. Some, not all. As we will see, only Peter, James, and John will take the hike up to the mountaintop with Jesus. Mark chapter 9, verse 2, the first part of that verse, hear the word of the Lord. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want you to close your eyes and just imagine. Put yourself in Peter, James, and or John's sandals, or their hiking boots, and you're on a hike with Jesus, way up to the top of the mountain. Perhaps you are feeling a bit smug that you got an invite and Andrew didn't, and all those other guys too. Perhaps you're feeling really good about being alone with Jesus. Perhaps you're feeling a little bit worn out and a bit out of breath from the hike. That's probably what I would be feeling. And now back to the passage, you can open your eyes. Mark chapter 9, verse 2 and following. Hear the word of the Lord. He was transfigured in front of them. And his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he didn't know what to say. Since they were terrified, a cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. This is the word of the Lord. Just imagine what it must have been like to be Peter, James, or John on that day. Can you imagine? What a shocking day. Shock layered upon shock layered upon shock. Shock number one is the transfiguration itself. Jesus is transfigured before their very eyes. I prefer to think of this as a revelation. Jesus was always this way, but he's allowing his disciples to see what was always there. His clothes are dazzling. Now, I'm not sure what Jesus wore on a day-to-day basis, but I would assume that Jesus normally dressed in something completely normal and nondescript. That's a shock. Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. Here's another shock. It's not just Jesus being transfigured in front of their eyes. Two guys show up, and not just two guys, Moses and Elijah. Of all the Old Testament characters who could show up, there are no two better than Moses and Elijah to summarize and represent the Old Testament. These two sum up the Old Testament better than any others. Moses gave us the law. Elijah was the great prophet. Suddenly, Peter, James, and John are in the visible manifestation of the law and the prophets. Maybe by this time, before the transfiguration, maybe by this time, they'd gotten a little bit used to being with Jesus. Maybe that's why Peter, James, and John needed to see the real glory of Jesus It's interesting that both Moses and Elijah had talked with God on mountains before. It's interesting that both Moses and Elijah had very unusual deaths or departures from this world. Moses 
was buried by God himself. Elijah left this earth in a chariot of fire. Those are unusual deaths, to say the least. And of course, they're with Jesus, who is about to experience a very highly unusual and singular death himself. So shock number one, the transfiguration. Shock number two, Moses and Elijah show up. Shock number three, God the Father makes an appearance. And he decides to say a word or two. And he actually interrupts Peter. No surprise there. Shock number four, Moses and Elijah are gone. Moses representing the law. Elijah representing the prophets, and they're gone. Only Jesus is left. And then Mark chapter 9, verse 8, and Matthew chapter 17, verse 7, 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. That's the Mark passage. Matthew, Jesus came up, touched them and said, get up. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you were in Sunday school uh, on the online class, the one person who was quoted more than any other is the Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he was quoted at least four times, maybe five times in Dr. Williams' uh, presentation to us. And... What's really interesting about that is that I'm going to quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon three or four times the rest of this message. None of them overlap, but if there's anything good in this message from this point on, you need to know that it wasn't Brother Kevin. It was Brother, Brother Charles Spurgeon. I want you to imagine with me three different scenes. Scene number one, what did Peter, James, and John not see. When they looked up, what did they not see? Number one, they didn't see Moses. Moses was gone. When the smoke cleared and the shock wore off, notice that they didn't see Moses alone. Can you imagine if the story had gone that way? Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone except Moses. Now what a disappointment that would have been. Hey, Moses was great and all that. But who wants the lawgiver when you can have the law fulfiller? Who will take your place, keep the law, and do what you cannot do for yourself? Not Moses. Moses couldn't do that. Who wants the cold moonbeams of Moses and the law when you can have the warm sunshine of Jesus and grace? Who would take the law of Moses over the love of Jesus? So when the disciples looked up, they didn't see Moses. They also didn't see Elijah. When the smoke cleared and the shock wore off, notice that they didn't see Elijah alone. Can you imagine if the story had been Elijah that they had seen? What a disappointment that would have been. Hey, Elijah was great and all that, but who wants the lion when you really need the lamb? If Elijah had been the last man standing on the Mount of Transfiguration, the story of redemption would have, been, would have had the wrong person at the center of the narrative. Who would, have choose Eli- Who would choose Elijah the prophet when you can have Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king? 
when the disciples looked up, they didn't see Moses. They didn't see Elijah. By the way, they didn't see Moses and Elijah and Jesus all together. What a privilege it would have been to walk down the mountain with them. Can you imagine Peter thinking about this on the way down? He's thinking, I cannot wait to introduce Moses and Elijah to my brother Andrew. That is going to be so cool. It was Peter who who said when Moses and Elijah were there with Jesus, it was Peter who said, it's good to be here. Let's build three tents so we can stay up here on the mountain a little bit longer. That's the thing about mountaintop experiences. You want to stay because they're special. But it's not our job to stay. Our job is in the valley below. Spurgeon said, It's better to see Moses and Elijah in Christ than to see Moses and Elijah with Christ. I'm going to say that again. That's really deep. It's a little bit hard to get. It's better to see Moses and Elijah in Christ than to see Moses and Elijah with Christ. By the way, that's where we are as believers. We get to see Moses and Elijah in Christ. Why did God speak? I think he wanted to make sure that the disciples understood the whole exercise. Why they had been called up there in the first place. Why they got to see this and the other disciples didn't. He didn't want them going down talking about Moses and Elijah except as it pertained to Christ. He didn't want them going down there bragging and talking about being able to meet Moses and Elijah and miss the whole point as we Christian disciples often do. I think God interrupted Peter because he wanted the disciples to listen to Jesus alone. Why were Peter... James and John chosen. Jay Vaughn says this, they were the three who walked the closest and dwelt the nearest to the heart of Jesus. They were also the three who were about to have their faith and their feelings strained to the uttermost by witnessing most closely the deepest agonies of their dear Lord. Peter was to found the church. James was to be the first martyr of the apostolic college. John would write Revelation. So scene number one, what they didn't see. Scene number two, let's look at what they did see. When they looked up, consider what they did see. They saw Jesus alone. Jesus. And Sam mentioned this in Sunday school. It was so so beautiful. Jesus, their comfort. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You can't say that about the law and the prophets. The law burden is crushing. The expectations of the prophet demanding. The disciples saw Jesus alone, their comfort, their master. Jesus says, no man can serve two masters, so let there be no confusion Moses was a taskmaster. Elijah was a taskmaster. But Jesus, thankfully for us, has surpassed both Moses and Elijah, and he is our master. Spurgeon says, we have no master but Christ. 
We bow down ourselves before no great leader of a sect, neither to Calvin, nor to Arminius, to Wesley or Whitfield. One is our master, and that one is enough. For we have learned to see the wisdom of God and the power of God in Jesus alone. Scene number one, what they didn't see. Scene number two, what they did see. Scene number three, what do we need to see? We wrestled with this in Sunday school today. What is the takeaway? What are the takeaways? How does this apply to our lives? We were not there with Peter, James, and John, but, you know, sort of, in a way today, we are with them through the reading of the Word and the study of this passage. So what should we see? Well, I think one thing we should see is mountaintop experiences because they are real in the life of a follower of Christ. But note this, not all the disciples were there. Also note this, that the disciples who were there weren't able to stay. If you're on the mountaintop, you need to be patient with those who are in the valley. If you're in the valley, you need to be patient with those who are on the mountaintop. And remember this, your good shepherd is leading you no matter where you are on your walk. All we need is Jesus alone. Believers, all you need is Jesus. Suddenly looking around them, they no longer saw any with them, anyone with them except Jesus. Unbelievers, all you need is Jesus. Peter, James, and John knew who they were looking at. They were looking at the Son of God. These things were written to you so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. As an unbeliever, you need to know the Savior and you need to accept Jesus. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our hike up the mountain. We've climbed the heights. We've seen all that we needed to see. We don't need to see Moses anymore. We don't need to see Elijah anymore. We need to see Jesus alone. The valley below awaits. The next big challenge will soon be upon us. For some of us, it's just the challenge of returning to what used to be normal. And that brings anxiety. For some of us, the valley of the shadow of death awaits. Believer, here's my question for you. Will you try to face the valley, face your next big challenge? Will you try to face that under your own power? Or will you cast yourself on the mercies of our own dear Savior and Master and see Jesus alone? Unbeliever, why are you waiting? Why are you, why are you risking eternal separation from the one who longs to save you and gave his life to redeem you? Heaven is real and you want to go there. Hell is real and you don't want to go there. And if you don't have Christ, that is exactly where you're going. If you don't know him, don't delay. Jesus alone can save you. Today is the day of salvation. Like Peter, James, and John, I want you to be able to look up and see Jesus alone. Father, we thank you for this strange and beautiful passage that tells us how you were able to pull the curtains back just a little bit and let Peter, James, and John those three great disciples, those three great eyewitnesses, how you were able to pull those curtains back 
and let them see your true nature, your true glory. I believe you do that for us, Lord, when you save us. You give us a little foretaste of glory divine. We come to the realization that you are our only comfort and you are the only rightful master of our life. And that is why we call you Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, that when we get up, we will see Jesus alone. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus alone. Amen.